I'm Geneve. If you guys haven't met me yet, I'm one of the senior leaders here at The Rock. Um, the pastors are actually in Anaheim. They're attending Rock Conference, and you better believe that when they come back next week, they're going to be pumped up to share with us what they've received, and so I am looking forward to that. Make sure you're here. Uh, but we're going to dive right in, and we are going to actually be in a passage that I think all of us are familiar with. So if you open your Bibles, we're going to go to John 3.16. John 3.16. I know. Everyone's like, oh, I know that scripture. <laughs> I'm going to read it to you. We're going to go from 16 to 19, uh, and we're just going to read, read this. I'll read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Last Sunday, Pastor Daniel uh, talked about how God pursues us right? How he's out to get us, not to like take us down, but he's out to get us with his love, to chase after us individually. And I think that sometimes when we think about God's love for us, we kind of like shift us into this like group setting, like, oh, God loves us, right? Like we're just one big herd of sheep and God loves all of us so much. And uh, if one of us goes missing, then it's like he has 99 other ones. It doesn't matter. But you know, there's a parable in the Bible that says that if God loses one sheep, what does he do? He leaves the 99 to go after the one. And God, that's how much God loves you, and he pursues us individually, uniquely. You have a special place in God's heart. It's not just like he looks over into the world and was like, oh, I just love them all, which he does. But he looks at us individually. There's something in us, each and every single one of us, that sets us apart. There's nobody else like you, right? And so God loves us and pursues us individually. And I think I can look back and I think about all the places and times where God has pursued me. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't always know the Lord. I came to know the Lord, oh gosh, 11 years ago, I think. And uh, I grew up Buddhist in my family. And when I look back, it kind of makes me laugh because even in those moments when I am rejecting the Lord or I'm running away from him or I just like don't want anything to do with God, God still tries to show himself. I see a glimpse here and there of him. When I look back on my life, I remember there was a high school friend of mine and I was a Buddhist at that time and she said, hey, there's a really good movie out called Passion of the Christ. You should come and see it with me. Okay. <laughs> You know, I know, someone's like, oh, that's a really deep one. And someone gave me a Bible. Uh, I had a friend who, um, a teacher who prayed with me when I was going through some stuff with my family. This was all before I knew God. And so I look back and I see how God pursued me. And you and I are here today in church because somehow along the way, God pursued you uniquely. Your testimony is unlike any other testimony, right? But at some point, when we first come to know the Lord, it's as if like, like, we're a baby, like they say baby Christians, right? Like, we first come to know the Lord, and I think about my son, Jace. He's like 21 months now. When he was first born, he didn't care about anyone else. He cared about himself, <laughs> right? He had needs that needed to be filled. Like, he, he would cry when he needed something, and he didn't care how much sleep I had or didn't have. Like, he just, he just let me know when he needed me and what he needed, and uh, he needed it now, 
And I think about my relationship with God when I first knew the Lord, and that's like my relationship with God when I first knew the Lord. That I looked at my life, I was like, God, I have all of these needs, right? I need you in my life because all of these things help me set my life right and do it right now, you know? And I think when we talk about being baby Christians, that's kind of how it is. God establishing his trust and his faithfulness and his reputation in our lives, right? When we first come to know the Lord, that's how good he is. He's like, that's right, I got you, just as a good parent, right? I don't look at Jason and be like, okay, that is so selfish of you, you know, although there, that thought did come on my mind. But at the, at the same time, I look at a baby, and I'm like, that's what you expect. As babies, that's what you expect, right? But how many of you guys know that if this was Jay's 20 years from now, we'd have issues, <laughs> right? At some point in his life, he needs to grow up. He needs to mature. He needs to think outside of himself. And as Christians, we have to do that too. See, we were created to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually. We can't stay baby Christians forever. We can't just have this relationship with God and say, it's all about me, right? At some point in our walk with the Lord, there is an expectation that we grow and we mature. Because if that doesn't happen, if Jace never grows up, there's something wrong. And so we were created to grow. We were created to mature. I love the scripture. It says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I love the scripture because of where it's at. Like, you think about this, and, and the scripture is talking about, like, hey, when we grow, don't act like a child anymore. But it's in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. This entire chapter is about how we are to love others, right? You love others with patience, kindness, long-suffering. And then smack in the middle of that scripture, it says, don't be a child anymore. <laughs> because in order for us to love others, we have to grow up. In order to love and care for those around us, in order to long suffer, suffer long with those around us, we have to put away childish stuff behind us. We have to grow up. So today I want to talk to you about God's heart for the world. God's heart for the world. And, and part of it is, yes, missional world, like another country world, tribe and tongue world. Yes, that's totally part of this. Uh, I have a heart for mission. Scott and I were in China for a year. Like, that is absolutely part of what this is about. But today, I want to talk about not that world. I want to talk about your world. You know, we all live in a world. You all have a circle of influence. We all have neighbors and friends and coworkers. You know, that's your world. That's the world that you live in, that no one else lives in exactly the same you know, God, when he pursued you individually, when he chased after you to prove himself to you, to prove his love to you, you know that he chases and loves and pursues your neighbor as much as he loves you. You know that he chases and pursues and loves the homeless guy that's on the street corner as much as he loves you. He chases and loves that drug addict who can't get free just as much as he loves you. And he even loves those who are violent against God himself, against Christians as much as he loves you. How many of you guys remember Paul? 
who was Saul in the Bible. And when he was Saul, what did he do? He grabbed Christians. He dragged them into jail. He stood on the sidelines as Stephen was being stoned to death. And yet God pursued him as a person and loved him. Because see, our walk with the Lord, God's love for us is not conditional. It's not about what we have done right or what we have done wrong. God's love for us never changes. It never changes. It doesn't matter what mistakes we've made or what good we've done. His love counter for us, it doesn't go up or down. And that should bring comfort to us. Because you know, well, at least for me, I make mistakes all the time. And I'm so thankful that God's love for me doesn't change because I just did something foolish. And what we get is that when we come to say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, we get this intimate relationship with God. God's love for us doesn't change. It's this relationship that we have with him that we get when we walk the life that his son has paid for. Going back to John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave. See, love is demonstrated. Love is put into action. God doesn't just give us the Bible and says, I have all of these promises for you, and I'm going to say all of these nice things just so you feel good. No, God said he loves the world so much that he gave. He puts action to his words. He's not a God of empty promises. And then it says, he gave his only begotten son. What more of a precious gift could God have given? Did you know that God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus? I talked to someone the other day. I told him that, and he goes, no way. No way he loves me just as much as Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Like, do you even know who Jesus was? Jesus was God's only begotten son. Like, there's no way. Like, he loves me, but as much as he loves Jesus, no way. God, God can't love me more than that. Do you know what I've done? Jesus was perfect. And I looked at him and I said, that is the whole point. That this perfect son of God, so loved by God, that he gave him up because he loves us just as much. And Jesus died on our behalf. And if you don't believe my, I actually have a scripture. I had to like look it up to prove myself. This is Jesus out of Jesus' own mouth. So in red, in the Bible, it says, Then the world will know that you, God, sent me, Jesus, and have loved them, us, even as you have loved me. Jesus said, God, if only the world would know that you love them as much as you love me. That was his prayer. This was his high priestly prayer. In his last moments, right, like his, his prayer was that, God, may they know the love you have for them. God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. Moving on, and John says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This isn't perish like, oh, perish like you live a life and then you die perish. This is perish like eternity in hell perish. Before I knew the Lord, uh, I was a Buddhist and then I was an atheist. And um, one of the things that I struggled with were these questions about God. And this was one of them. 
if God was so loving, why would he send people to hell? You know, something about atheists that I, um, at least the ones I've encountered, myself included long before, um, was that we always try to find the, like, one question that would um, just tear down any sort of argument that God is real. And we, like, put it in our pockets and we just wait for the moment. Oh, you think God is real? Well, I have this question. If God is so loving, why would he send people to hell? If God is so loving, why did he even create hell in the first place? If God is so loving, why wouldn't he just forgive everybody like he tells us to forgive everybody? Those are hard questions. And, and when I became a Christian, I still struggled with those questions. And some of you guys in here may struggle with that question still. And I encourage you, if you struggle, wrestle it out with God. Don't just stop because you get a hard question and be like, well, I don't know. Because that's easy to do. Like, well, I don't know. I just, I'm just going to step in faith and just believe that everything that God says is real and I don't know. Wrestle with God. Wrestle with God until you get your answer. Because he has the answers. And so this is, this is what the Lord revealed to me when I was wrestling with him about this because it was really hard for me to understand how a loving God can send people to hell because that doesn't sound very loving, okay? But this is what he was showing me that, that so often we understand God as loving. Like God, God is love and then we just stop right there. Like God is just a loving God, the end. But did you know that God is also just and holy and righteous? And that you cannot have love without justice. It's two sides of the same coin. See, if somebody hurt your family, your love for your family would demand justice, right? And that's where God stands. That his love for the world, for his son, for you as an individual demands justice for the sin that is in the world. But at the same time, his love provided a way for us to be in relationship with him forever. Because the holiness of God, the justice of God, cannot dwell with sin. It cannot. God is too pure. And so when you think about that, it is the justice of God and the love of God combined together, hand in hand. They go together. That created a hell and yet created a way for us to go to heaven. And you might think to yourself, okay, well, that might make sense for all the bad people out there, like people who don't, like who hurt other people, okay? Like maybe they can go to hell. That's fine. But what about the people out there that are good? that never hurt a soul in their life? What about those people that God sends to hell? How is that fair? And I want to say, share with you this illustration that got, Scott shared a few weeks ago at K-Town. And it was really good because it opened my eyes to even a deeper understanding of this. And, and Scott said, look, if we compare ourselves to someone that's, like, bad, let's take Hitler. I think we can all agree that Hitler was bad, right? Okay. If the standard was here, and we compare ourselves to Hitler and say, well, at least I'm not like Hitler, then we'd all be going to heaven, right? Like, like we're good. We're good people. But if the standard was Mother Teresa, 
I think some of us would be in trouble. At least I would be because I am not that compassionate. I'm working on it, but I'm not. If we compare ourselves to other people, the standard would change. But the standard is not Hitler and the standard is not Mother Teresa. The standard is perfection. And it's Jesus. And when we compare ourselves to Jesus, all of us fail. None of us are good enough. And we can only compare ourselves to Jesus because all of these other standards, they would change. Because as bad as Hitler is, I'm sure he had some moral compass in there somehow about his own family. And as good as Mother Teresa is, I'm sure somewhere in there she probably still falls short. Those standards change. And the only one that doesn't change is Jesus. And so when we look at that, we look at it and we say, thank God that somebody was perfect and died in my place. Because then now, it doesn't matter. We, we get this gracious God who's also just. And we understand it goes hand in hand. It's both at the same time. C.S. Lewis said there are two types of people. There are people that look to God and say, thy will be done, God. And then there are people that God looks to them and says, well, thy will be done. Because God respects our free will and our choices. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is when we get to be with God forever. I mean, heaven is not a theme park where we go and we cheer and we have a big party about all the good things we did in life. Although I think that's part of it. Like, there's going to be a huge feast and the streets are lined with gold. I think that's part of it. But really, what is heaven? Heaven is when we get to be with God forever. And what is hell? Hell is when we are away from God forever. And so the question is almost like, why would God force someone to be with him forever if they don't want him? So either thy will be done, God, or thy will be done. This is what you want. When we think about the reality of heaven and hell, I think that it should move us to action. How can we say to God, and we read in the Bible, how can we say to God, look at all of these things, look at all of these promises and the freedom that you want from me and the healing that you want from me and the provision that you want from me and say, that's real. God, I receive it. I believe it 100% that it's true. And yet go through life in, as if it's just awesome and peachy and not for one moment agonize over the fact that the person next to you is on their way to hell. Because if all of this is true, that is true too. And sometimes I think as Christians, we really want a life that is just comfortable. Like, we avoid pain at all costs. Like, we say, oh, no, every single type of pain is bad. And so I'm just going to concentrate on the good. And I want to challenge you today. I'm going to show you in Scripture where maybe the little anguish is actually biblical. We're going to turn to Romans 9. If anybody has a heart of God for people, it's Paul, right? Paul's heart for the world. And this is what Paul says. He writes in Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, look, what I'm about to say, I'm not exaggerating. This is truly my heart. And then he goes on and says this. I have great sorrow 
an unceasing anguish in my heart. For if I could, I wish that I myself were cursed and and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Paul's heart is incredible right here. He's saying, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth that if I could be cursed myself and be cut off from God forever so that my people would know him, I would do it. I would do it. Paul's heart for the people, he realized at some point in his life that his relationship with God is not for himself. That it was for everybody else. He was motivated by the love of God for the world. And so when I look at him and I think about the life of Paul and I think, the thing with Paul is that he was so anguished by such kingdom-minded things that those otherworldly things, like being jailed, being beaten, that didn't anguish him because they were little compared to this big anguish he had in his heart. It diminished everything else in his life because he was so gospel-consumed instead of self-consumed. And I pray that I have a heart like that, right? But even when we don't have compassion yet for people, even when, when we don't have the heart and the love, like when someone cuts me off on the highway, I have to do a quick heart check. Even when we don't have all of the emotions in place, we're still called to evangelize. And it's because we're called to obey the Lord. See, emotions are fickle. They come and go. How many of you guys ever said, I just don't feel like it? Right? See, feelings come and go. But when God says to go out, it's in obedience to him, and it's out of the love of, love of God, to God and to his people, right? But to God first. All of us in here, if you follow the Lord, you love the Lord. So even if you don't love people yet, work on that, by the way, okay? Don't stay where you're at. I'm working on it. I think we're, we're going to work on it until the day we die, right? Because no one's perfect. But if you don't have the emotions, don't wait for the emotions. Just do it. Just do it. It's not easy. In Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, Paul writes this, and it's funny because we just read about his heart for people, right? We just read about how he anguishes over them. And then this is what he says to the church of Ephesus. He said, pray for me. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. If Paul needs prayer, even after he has the compassion and love and heart of God, how much more do we need prayer? See, what I'm saying is it's not comfortable for anyone. It's not easy for anyone. But we do it. We do it. And just like Paul, we pray, Jesus, give me the boldness. Make me fearless. Open my mouth. Give me the right words. I'll tell you this story real quick before my last illustration. 
um, Scott and I know this couple, and uh, we've been praying for them for years and years and years and years, and they're very dear to us. And uh, Scott and him would go out sometimes, and he's an intellectual. Like, he is the guy who asked, you know, like, why do we have the Old Testament if we just need to know Jesus? You know, or, like, why is there slavery in the Bible? And why does God send people to hell if he's a loving God? I mean, hard questions. And if you know Scott, he's the right person to ask. <sighs> Scott's like a theologian in his own mind. Not his own mind, no. I mean, anyways, he's like a theologian. And so they've been going out um, together, talking and all the stuff. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, Scott sat down with him, and he finally told him, like, look, I think you just need to read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, or C.S. Lewis, like, Screw Tape Letters or something. Like, start there. And the guy said, you know, you're not the first person that I respect that's told me that. I'll, like, probably pick it up on audiobook or something. And so he did. That week, he texted Scott and told him, hey, I've been listening to Screw Tape Letters, and um, it's dense. And if you guys have ever read it, Screw Tape Letters is basically a book that C.S. Lewis wrote that is letters between one of Satan's like leaders and one of his minions. And the entire book is just letters he writes to him about his strategy on how to make people believe there is no God and how to distract them. And so he, he was just like, this is just, you know, super dense. So I had to buy the book and read it, actually, myself. I know, so funny. And so Scott and I were like, wow, like, that's incredible. Like, God's so good. So about a week later, we had them over for dinner, and um, they had just gone to a wedding, so we sat together, and we just talked, and then we finished dinner, we're cleaning up, they leave, and so as we're cleaning up and stuff, they walk back in, and I was like, are you okay? <laughs> like, are you guys okay? And he looked so uncomfortable. Like, he, he stood there, and, um, and he said, uh, I feel kind of embarrassed to tell you guys this, and I was thinking in my mind, like, what do we do? Like, what do we do to make you feel embarrassed to tell us something? You know, because we're very close. And he, and he stood there, and this was his exact words. He said, um, I just want you guys to know that I now believe in JC. <laughs> but not as the cool guy, like as Lord. And I sat there, and I just like, at first I was like, um... Did he just say that he believed in Jesus as Lord or he believed that Jesus is a cool guy? Like, what did he just say? Um, but I stood up with tears in my eyes. I gave him a hug. Scott gave him a hug. We uh, told him just, man, I'm so proud of you. And I said, hey, you need to come over. And I just, I just want to hear how you got to this point and your entire journey. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we have all eternity to talk about it now. And I just thought, that's incredible. And then I closed the door and I bawled my eyes out. <laughs> because this is the thing. When you've been praying for something for years and you sit there and it happens and it unfolds in front of you and you realize this is the moment that I've been waiting for. And you watch someone on their way to hell in a moment in front of you they turn and their entire eternity has changed before your eyes i i closed the door and i said i told scully i said there is nothing in this life that is more important this is what life is about watching people turn from darkness those who in scripture says love darkness more than light right that in this moment 
something happens and they turn and, and all of a sudden their eyes are open and it happens in front of you. It's a, it was as if, when I was bawling my eyes out, it was as if all of heaven was singing and you could hear it for the one person. For the one person. There's nothing in life more important. And now we get to walk him through discipleship, and it's just, it's absolutely incredible, and so, so thankful. And I want to share with you an illustration to even hit my point a little bit more. We're going to have a race. And the race is to reach six billion people in the world. I think it might be seven. I don't know. Last time I taught this teaching, like an hour ago, there might be another billion people added. It might be seven now, I don't know. But the race is six billion people. We're gonna reach six billion people in the world, okay? And on our one competitor is we're gonna have 10,000 churches. And 10,000 churches, they're gonna add 1,000 people to their congregation every year. And our other competitor is Joe, Lone Joe. His goal is that he's gonna disciple one person every year. And his the people that he disciples will disciple one person. That's pretty doable, right? Like, that's realistic, like trying to find somebody and walk them through and disciple someone, one, one a year. So after year one, our 10,000 churches, adding 1,000 each, now have 20,000 people. And Joe now has two. He discipled one person. Yay, Joe. After year two, we have 30,000 people in churches. And Joe now has four. Year three, 40,000 people, and Joe has eight. And you think to yourself, clearly, we know who's going to win this race. <laughs> right? Like, obviously, the church is way ahead than Joe and his lone disciples over here. But you fast forward a few more years. By year 10, the church will reach 110,000. Joe would have reached 1,000. But by year 20... The church would have reached 210,000, but Joe and all the people would have reached a million. And by year 33, the church would have reached 340,000, but Joe would have reached 8.5 billion people. And that's committing to disciple one person every year. And those people disciple one person every year. It would take the church, it would take 10,000 churches, 600 years to reach 6 billion people if they added 1,000 people to their congregation every year. It took Joe 33. And then you might think, well, people are added every year to the world. Like, again, probably another billion was just added. By year 35, Joe and his people would have reached 34 billion people. See, the problem is not the church. It's us. The gospel has been entrusted to us. You know, you have a personal story, testimony about how you got to where you are, how God pursued you, how Jesus became Lord of your life. You have victories that you have won, freedoms that you've experienced, healings that you've received. And all of that is part of the gospel that has been entrusted to you. And each and every one of us, our story is unique with a common under foundation that Jesus is Lord. 
And when you look at this illustration, sometimes we can look at the church as a collective whole and say, well, if the church would just... But you know, God looks at us and say, you go. You go. What has been entrusted to you? One person a year. That's not too crazy, right? So how do we do this? You pray. <laughs> you pray for those around you and you pray for yourself. You pray for those who don't know the Lord yet and you pray that you would have the boldness to share it with them. And then you identify your world. What is your world? What is your circle of influence? Who do you come in contact with? Who do you see all the time? Whose ear do you have? What influence do you have? And then you get discipled. Discipleship just means that you learn how to read the word, how to hear God, how to obey him, how to live the life that he has for you. That's discipleship. And what's so great about The Rock is that we have a discipleship program. It's where I learned how to do that because when I first came to know God, I didn't even know, for God so loved the world. <laughs> but then I got discipled. And I realized, this is the life. So get discipled. We have discipleship classes coming up. And you cannot give what you don't have. You cannot disciple others if you don't know how to be discipled. So get discipled and then disciple somebody else. And then find a mentor. This one's really important. I have mentors and I've had mentors my whole entire Christian walk. A mentor is just someone that you see that has gone before you and you say there is something in that person's life that I know I have to have. There's freedom in their life. There's a testimony that they have that I know is for me too. And you go and you pursue them and you say, will you mentor me? Will you show me how? Find a mentor. Elisha had Elijah. Timothy had Paul. All throughout the Bible, we see mentors and mentorees. Find a mentor. And then reach out to your community. Invite people over to your house. I, I am all about living in community. Like, I am all about living life together and not living life in solitude. There is something about saying to another family or to another person, hey, let's do this life together. Live in community. Find someone. Invite them over. Introduce them to your family. Do something that's super uncomfortable. Get out of your comfort zone. We are not supposed to live a life where it's just all comfortable, all peachy. God wants us to have joy and peace. But God also says to do things that make us pray for ourselves, right? Scott, if you guys know Scott, he's the introvert. I'm the extrovert, if you guys can't tell. <laughs> I'm super loud. I probably don't even need this mic. Um, I love talking to people. I love living in community. I can, I can, people, like, I feed off of people. I love people time. And um, Scott's the one that, like, you know, if you don't talk to him just, like, one-on-one, -on -one, he might just be in the shadows. You never even know he's there. Um, and that's okay. Like, we're very different, and we, like, match each other perfectly. But this is what's really funny about Scott that makes me super uncomfortable is that it doesn't matter where we go, he always sees like the one person that he can talk to, which is so odd for being an introvert. <laughs> and we went to dinner one time, it was like a week ago, 
And we went to Olive Garden, and we're walking out of Olive Garden, and I'm like so full, and I'm like, please roll me to the car. And so I'm like super distracted, you know, blinders on, like I'm so full, I can't even. And Scott walks out, and he sees this guy just sitting at the front of the door, and he had this Kentucky shirt on, and he was like, oh, Kentucky, and he walks over there, and he starts, like, having this 10-minute conversation with him about his life story, and where he's been, what college he went to, how he got to Kalamazoo, what job he has, I mean, just, like, now they're best friends, and that is, like, Scott, which is so funny to me, and it makes me so uncomfortable, but every time I watch him do it, something in me gets convicted and says, I need to be more like that. I need to stop ignoring the lady who's bagging my groceries. I need to stop ignoring the people that I get my drive-through food from. Like, at least say hello. Sometimes I'm so caught up in the day-to-day of my life and my lifestyle that I forget. I forget. So do something uncomfortable. Do something out of the ordinary. And then finally, invite. Invite someone to church. Did you know that I wouldn't be here if someone didn't invite me to church? Like, I don't know if everybody knows the story, but very, very quick, I worked at a shoe store. I didn't believe in God. Someone invited me to church. It was super awkward. I thought it was so weird. And yet here I am, by the grace of God, because someone invited me. It's not about the result. It's about obeying God. When we step out and invite, we get to watch God bring the increase. So we just do our part. We just do our part, and then we get to watch God work his part. And so invite, invite someone to church. We're all in different places in this room. Some of us in here, you hear this, and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go to the street corners and, like, invite the entire city in, you know? Like, that's amazing. Do it. (laughs) And then some of us in here, and you're like, I'm just trying to keep my head above the water. Like, I'm trying to just believe that God is real and he's good. And I encourage you to keep wrestling. It's totally okay. It's totally okay to struggle. It's just not okay to struggle and say, God, I don't need you in my struggle. Sometimes I think that we struggle and we're like, well, God, I'll just get my life together and then I'll live for you. And God's like, no, that's not, that's not what I said. I said, you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? All you who struggle and you have these doubts and you have these weaknesses and mistakes, come. That's the whole point, come. Let's wrestle and do this thing together. That's what's so amazing about God. He doesn't push you away. He embraces you and all of your mess. It's okay to struggle. It's just not okay to stay there. Don't stay there. Grow, right? Grow. It's the whole point, right? Grow, mature, get stronger. So I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you give us your heart, your heart that leaves the 99 and goes after the one, your heart that breaks for those who are on their way to hell. Your heart that is so full of love and compassion. Your heart to sacrifice and to give willingly. Lord, help us be bold and fearless when we open our mouths to share the gospel. Help us to be more gospel consumed 
things self-consumed. And Lord, I pray over all of those right now in this room that are struggling, struggling to believe your faithfulness and struggling to believe that you're good and struggling to believe that you'll lead them to victory. Lord, I pray that they lean into you more and more. And God, I know you'll lean into them. Lord, I pray that you strengthen them in this fight and that when they look back, this is part of their testimony that they get to share. Lord, I thank you that you look to us as individuals, that we're people uniquely created to change the world around us. Lord, show us how. Lead the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.